0: Today's reading comes from Zechariah 9, 9 through 13. You can follow along in your bulletin or on the screen. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return, return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Uh, the, um, the movie critic, Roger Ebert, was, uh, he was once doing, uh, reviewing the movie The Gray with Liam Neeson uh, when he did something that he has never Done before. He walked out. Uh, now, Ebert was losing at that point a battle to cancer. Uh, he knew that his life was, was coming toward an end, and so as he was watching The Grey, which, which if you've never seen, uh, it's about uh, a group of men who are being hunted by a pack of wolves. And just to spoil the ending for you, they all get eaten. Uh, as, as Ebert was watching this movie, he said he was so stunned with despair that he did something he's never done before. He walked out. Why? I, I mean, surely he has suffered through many bad movies in his time. Why, what, what was so special about this one? Why, why, why is this the tipping point where he finally just walked out of one? Well, later he wrote about what bothered him so much uh, in the movie, and he, he said this way he said, The gray advances with pitiless logic. There are more wolves than men. The men have weapons, the wolves have patience. The weather's punishing. I sat regarding the screen with mounting dread. The movie had to have a happy ending, didn't it? That question that Ebert is asking about the gray, that is, is that not the question that we are all asking today about our lives? It's got to have a happy ending, doesn't it? You see, just like a movie, we, we all interpret our lives as a story. A story where we've come from somewhere and are going to somewhere that will hopefully give us the happy end that we all want. And that's something that our story's moving toward, whatever it is, that thing is what gives you hope. Well, the people of God in Zechariah 9, they are a people desperate for hope. Uh, 100 years before this passage here in Zechariah 9, they lost everything. After centuries of sin and brokenness, God finally punished them. Uh, Their enemies came in, invaded them, took them away from their home, from their identity, from their security. For decades... They lived as exiles in a strange place until after 70 years of being mocked, abused, and, and far worse, a, a small group finally gets to go back. Only when they do, it, it, it's not a homecoming as much as it is a funeral. They get back and, and find out everything's been destroyed, Their country has been divided up and and given out to all different people, and and now the people of God get the privilege of living under enemy occupation in the land that God had promised them. Their story had become one of failed dreams and unrealized potential, uh, of cynicism and uncertainty, of of living in the gap between unthinkable promises and an unfulfilled reality. And when they look at the dead end that their story has become, at this point, they can't see a way forward. They're in desperate need, desperate need of hope. And in this small, vulnerable group, There's a man named Zechariah who God in our passage gives a message of hope, of anticipated goodness to a people who need at this moment nothing short of a miracle, to a people who are not so different than some of us in here today. See, some of us came in here today with things in our lives making us doubt the love of God for us, making us question the promises of the gospel for us. Some of us came in here with things in our lives that feel like a dead end where we can't see the way forward, where what we need today is nothing short of a miracle. If that's you, you're right where you need to be. All of us, though, All of us came in here like Israel in the middle of a story. And so here is my question to you this morning. Where is it going? What's the future that you're moving toward? What is it that you've put your hope in today? Because God in Zechariah 9 is inviting you this morning into a hope is calling you today through the gospel to anticipate a goodness in Jesus that is more true, real, and beautiful than we ever thought possible. So three things, three things that I want to quickly look at in this passage to see this hope that God is calling us to this morning. An unexpected king, an unswerving future, and an undying hope. So first, an unexpected king. To to a discouraged and defeated people, God breaks in with a word of hope. Rejoice, shout, and see, God says. Your king's coming. And and in many ways, this king, this coming king, will be exactly what we would expect him to be. He'll be righteous, verse 9 says. Meaning that unlike the kings of Israel that that got them into this mess, unlike the kings of Persia that God's people have been exiled under, this king, this coming king will perfectly embody God's righteousness, the justice and truth of God. And this righteous king will rule over a kingdom that verse 10 says will stretch from sea to sea, from Israel to the ends of the world, A kingdom, in other words, that will eventually replace all other kingdoms. One that will be filled with men, women, and children from every race, tribe, tongue, and people group who will one day gather around this king of kings in astonishment and awe, singing, to him who sits on the throne, be praise, honor, glory, and power forever. To this people, short on hope, Zechariah says... Good news. The king you've always wanted but never had is coming, and he's going to be like everything that you expected. And he's going to be like nothing you've expected. See, in the verses just before our passage, Zechariah tells God's people to get ready because God Himself is coming like a warrior. And he is gonna take back the land that they lost. And so if you're reading through this chapter uh, where where our verses are this morning, you're expecting then that this coming king that Zechariah is saying to get ready for, uh, he's gonna ride in on a stallion, right? On a war horse, oozing strength, confidence. But instead, Zechariah says, this king will come riding on a donkey and and not even like a like a grown impressive donkey a baby donkey one so weak its mother will have to ride next to it to keep it going in other words he won't be impressive or exceptional but lowly And here's what he won't have with him, a chariot, a horse, or a sword, meaning he's the exact opposite of what any of us would be expecting, and yet he is exactly what we all needed. On the Netflix show, The Crown, there's this moment where where Queen Elizabeth has been queen for a while, and uh, and she starts wrestling uh, with, why am I even doing this? Yeah, I I give up so much of my life to this. I I have a life that is not like anybody else. Why? What is the point of all of this? Does it even matter? Should I even keep going on? Why do we even have this in the first place? And and her grandmother, who's queen herself at one point, uh, comes to her and, and she tells her that monarchy is God's gift to humanity because it gives everyday people A higher ideal to lift themselves up to. Well, Zechariah 9 and and God in the gospel is the complete opposite of that. Zechariah is saying, this king who we rejoice in this Palm Sunday as Jesus is God's gift to humanity, not by giving every day needy people like you and me a higher ideal to lift ourselves up to, but a lowly savior to come down to, you and me in our suffering and sin. This king we know today as is Jesus isn't reactive or easily annoyed isn't harsh or demanding, isn't stoic or distant. No, he is gentle and lowly. Meaning Jesus will never cringe at fellow lowly people like you and me. Meaning Jesus will never keep at arm's length like anyone here in our suffering and sin. No, that is the people he has come for. For the broken hearted for the weak, for those who mourn, who grieve, who repent. This king, King Jesus, who Paul says one day every knee will bow to, every tongue will confess as Lord, comes gentle and lowly, putting his hands around sufferers, opening his arms wide towards sinners, who is shockingly approachable because this king is one of us who comes riding on a donkey what peasant farmers rode on, meaning that for all of his breathtaking, glorious, Jesus Christ remains today disarmingly accessible. Now, this isn't who he is for everyone. For proud, self-sufficient people for people who don't think they need him, he will seem and come like that warrior. But for the lowly, for anybody today who in hope, in light of the hope of this coming king, brings to him their need, their brokenness, their story that feels like it has hit a dead end, he will be gentle and lowly, bringing an eternal reign of grace and peace To you. An unexpected king, second, then, an unswerving future. You see, hope, as I said, hope's all about the future. All right, hope in the Bible, it's not wishful thinking. It's not becoming a glass-half-full type of person. It's not some Myers-Briggs number or Enneagram assessment or whatever. It's not a feeling or a mood. No, hope in the Bible is a present assurance based on a certain future. And in verse 11, God moves from talking about his king to talking to his people assuring us of the unswerving future that we have to look forward to under this coming king. And he does it first with an invitation. God says, as for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. You see, at, at this point, uh, most of God's people, they, they are still in exile. Uh, which God portrays here as this hopeless, helpless, waterless pit, Uh, a giant hole in the ground essentially that, that in that day people would literally just take prisoners and throw them in there and leave them. It's a place where you can't escape from, in other words. A place where you're forgotten, where you're forsaken, a place where you go to die. This is what life literally and figuratively was like for God's people. Forgotten, forsaken, left for dead. And so do you see what God's doing here? God's defining their reality for them. He's naming the brokenness that they are in right this moment. And here's why that's so important. Hope becomes real when we enter into our pain, not ignore it. When we acknowledge our wounds, not avoid them. When we allow ourselves to feel the impact of the brokenness we find ourselves in, as opposed to naively just telling ourselves, it's not that bad. Israel, Israel is in real suffering right now. Suffering that's self-inflicted but suffering that seemingly contradicted the fact that God wildly loves them in the gospel. And so God is inviting them here to see their suffering so they can name it now as part of their story, but not all their story. No, because here is the promise he gives them about where their story, about where our story is going in the gospel. God says in verse 12, return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that I will restore to you twice as much to you. I will bend Judah as I bend my bow and fill it with Ephraim. I will rouse your son Zion against your son's Greece and will make you like a warrior's sword. God's people are are in a waterless pit hopeless and helpless, and God gives them this incredible promise of the future that they can enjoy under this coming king, that the generous heart of God will return to them double of everything they lost due to their sin, and that the victorious king of God will overcome all his and their enemies and invite his people to share in, to live in this victory with him. And so what do they do in light of this promised future? What can Israel do in light of where their story is going? Return. Come back. Live in the present based on what they believe about the future anticipate God's goodness for them in the reality of their brokenness. They can come home not hostage to their pain, not slaves to sin, but as prisoners of hope. And on this Palm Sunday, as we too look to this promised future of where, like God's people in Zechariah 9, our story is going in Jesus. We are given that same invitation to live as prisoners of hope in a broken world. To not avoid or ignore our wounds, but allow ourselves to enter into them. To let ourselves feel the impact of the places of brokenness in our lives. To voice the things in our lives that seem to contradict the fact that God wildly loves us in Jesus. To enlighten, to own in light of the hope of a God who forgives and renews that, like Israel, some of us in here this morning have found ourselves in a waterless pit through our own doing. In other words, to live in the present based on what we believe about the future. And our coming King Jesus. To by the power of the gospel live as prisoners of hope. Who in light of the senseless shooting in Nashville. Grieve and mourn. Lament and cry out. Not despite the future that's promised to us. But because of the future that's promised to us under our coming King Jesus. A future where everything sad will come untrue, a future that we're ready for now. So an unexpected king, an unswerving future, lastly then, an undying hope. Uh, when, when I was a kid, I got to meet, face to face, a celebrity. Dave Icorn. Now, I'm guessing by the silence here, nobody knows who Dave Icorn is. Dave Icorn was the Channel 9 news weatherman in Syracuse, New York, where I grew up. He was the voice of the weather for Central New York, right? This guy was an A-list celebrity, I guarantee you that. And, and growing up, I loved Dave Eichhorn. I, as a kid, I would written letters to him. Uh, I got his, his weather calendar every year for Christmas. Every night, for, for my life as a kid, I, I watched him on the TV as with this rare combination of grace and intellect, he, he would explain to us the intricacies of how it's going to snow every day for the next six months. <laughs> and, and one day, I heard that Dave Ikeorn was doing a meet and greet at a Wegmans grocery store around the corner from our house. And I said, we've got to go. And so I get my weather calendar. I've got a list of questions that I'm going to ask him. And I get there, show up, day of, froze. Suddenly, this man who I had watched every evening of my life was in front of me, not on the TV, but in living color. Well, in Matthew 21 on the first Palm Sunday, suddenly this coming king that Israel had been reading about in Zechariah 9 for centuries jumped off of the page and was in front of them in living color. When on the first Palm Sunday... As people line the streets shouting what we sang, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus entered Jerusalem. Hope entered our broken world. Riding on a donkey as the king who's finally come for his people the one we've never expected but always needed, the one who will bring the unswerving future of God's kingdom of extinguished evil and all things made new to Israel and to you and to me. And taking in the whole scene, Matthew says this all took place to fulfill what was spoken through Zechariah, say to daughter Zion, see Your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey. Our king has come off the page and into living color, and he is just what he was promised to be. Gentle. Only Jesus wasn't just gentle on that first Palm Sunday. No, it is the essence of who he was and continues now to be. That as Jesus himself says, in the only place in all of the Bible where he describes what his heart is like, in Matthew 11, he says, I am gentle and lowly, who in love would go lower than we ever expected, from a donkey all the way to a cross, when on Good Friday, In his death for our sin, Jesus descended into our waterless pit, suffered our exile, until three days later, the stone was rolled away, and hope walked out of that tomb. Because Jesus walked out of that tomb, resurrected by his Father who loves him, with our victory in his hand. You see, in the Bible, Hope is not a something. Hope is a someone. Hope is Jesus. To hope is to fill our hearts continually with every good thing that Jesus our King has won for us. To see and be sure about the future we will enjoy of all things including us made new by our victorious King. Who resurrected will one day crush our enemies of Satan, sin, and death and extend God's grace and peace over every square inch of this world forever. If you are in Jesus this morning, your future is busting at the seams with hope. A hope that we don't have as much as it has us. A hope that the Apostle Paul says will never put us to shame because Jesus will never put you to shame. A hope that you can be sure of this morning because it's a hope that's ours all by grace. A hope that frees you to enter into your brokenness, to move into the repentable parts of your lives and the repairable parts of our lives. A hope that frees us from the waterless pit of our sin and idolatry. A hope that allows you to risk living in the presence in light of what we believe about the future under our coming King Jesus. A hope that frees you to live by the gospel as prisoners of hope rejoicing in a broken world because we know today even with a mustard seed of faith that this very high school auditorium and all of creation will one day be filled with the peace of Jesus our coming king as the waters cover the sea. You know I wonder if some of us in here today some of us in here who have things in our lives that feel like a dead end this morning, some of us where we can't see a way forward, I wonder if this very holy week could be the beginning of a breakthrough for you, could be the beginning of allowing yourself to risk hoping in Jesus in hard places that doesn't magically make everything better, but invites you to live now, anticipating a goodness in our King Jesus that will be more true, beautiful, and real than we ever thought possible. Why not? Let's pray. Father, on this Palm Sunday, we join with Zechariah and looking to this coming King, who we know today as Jesus, full of grace upon grace. Holy Spirit, we pray that through the power of the gospel you would free us today to live as prisoners of hope, of people today who will rejoice, shout and see in the midst of a broken world that our King has come And he is coming again, that he is our hope in a world where we can feel hopeless, that he is where our story is going, and we can't wait to get there, and we want to rejoice right now, knowing where it's all going. Spirit, do that work in us this holy week. Change us and transform us. And let all of Baldwin Park and the surrounding community see what it looks like for us to live as prisoners of hope as we wait on the promises of God to be fulfilled in our world. Amen.